On today's episode of the Dog Podcast, we'll be joined by Dr. Mukhtar Ali. Dr. Ali is a scholar of Islamic studies, specializing in Sufism, Islamic philosophy, and ethics. His areas of interest include Arabic and Persian literature, Quranic studies, theology, and comparative religion. He is currently a lecturer at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Well, Dr. Mukhtar, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Thank you very much. Perfect. Um, so, great. Um, so today we'll be talking about Dr. Mukhtar's book, which is titled Philosophical Sufism. Um, and it deals with particularly the school or the metaphysics of uh, Mahyuddin Ibn Arabi, who was the Andalusian mystic. So I think Dr. Mukhtar, let's just get right into it. Um, we know that we talk about Sufism. We, talked about, we talk about philosophy, we talk about um, mutakallimun or the Kalam tradition. These are big words and these are sometimes often complicated vocabulary for people who might not be familiar with these terms. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe very quickly define some of the differences on the approaches between the Kalam tradition, the Falsafa tradition, the, and the Sufi tradition? Like, How would you distinguish between the three? Right. <clears throat> so... Ilm al-Kalam is that discipline in Islam which uses rational thought and philosophical methodology to establish the tenets of religion. Hmm. And it was designed fundamentally to explain the theology. It's a school of theology. And to by doing so, the Mutakallimin were interested in protecting the religion from divergent and misguided understandings of our theological doctrines. And so this is the, in a nutshell, this is what Kalam is espousing and what it, it, is, um, it, it is putting forward. Now, when we move into philosophy, philosophy is not intrinsic to Islam. Islam is simply Quran and Hadith. This is what the Prophet brought. This is this is revelation and this is the deen. This is what it is founded upon. Philosophy came into Islam through the Greek translation movement. Works from Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and the pre-Socratic philosophers came into the Islamic world. And because there was so much, so much uh, richness in that tradition, so many similarities in in um, confluences that it quickly gained currency amongst the Muslims and they incorporated that way of thinking into Islamic uh, Islamic thought. Now philosophy isn't just Greek philosophy. Philosophy is a method. It's the, mm. me- it's the method and, it, and it, it, it espouses an epistemology. That epistemology is to use deductive reasoning to discover the fundamental nature of existence. Whereas when we go to mysticism in Arfan, which is more, it's closer to the true Islamic vision. And I say that because when we actually look at the Quran, we look at Wahi, Wahi is Kashf. Hmm. Wahi is revelation. It is a mode of spiritual knowledge, direct witnessing and knowledge. And so Islam is founded on kashf. It's mm. founded on the mystical methodology. It's not founded on a philosophy. It's not the thoughts of Muhammad, peace mm. be upon him. It's not his personal philosophy. In fact, all he did was to prepare himself through spiritual exercises and disciplines to ready himself to receive. Mm. So mysticism is rooted in, in reception. And a correspondence between the qalb and the aql and divine disclosure. Mm. So Islam promotes mysticism from the very uh, outset. It's true and true an Islamic methodology. And later on, when fiqh and the school, the legal schools developed, there, there became a sort of an orthodox framework within Islam which tended to push out mystical epistemology from the mainstream. 
which created a, a division between reason and revelation, or philosophy and mysticism, or legalism, Sharia, and mysticism. You see, so yeah. when we, we have to go back to the roots of the epistemological methods that each one of these schools espouse. Okay, sounds good. That's a very comprehensive answer. And actually, that leads me to my next question, which is that so we talked a little bit about the differences between the schools from an epistemic perspective. But, you know, interestingly enough, you titled your book uh, Philosophical Sufism. And you do go into the details of that in the introduction to the book as to why you labeled the book like that. So could you maybe talk about some of the the points of convergence between the different schools, like maybe a point of convergence between Sufism and falsafa or philosophy or Kalam and philosophy or Kalam and Sufism, where there were points in the Islamic intellectual history where they kind of came together. Sure. So the book is entitled Philosophical Sufism. And the reason for calling it this is not because... I'm merging two separate disciplines, philosophy and mysticism, in a convenient package, hmm. nor is it the um, nor is it using only philosophical terminology to explain mysticism. Although superficially, when we look at it, it appears that the Sufis in the school of Ibn Arabi, Sadr al Qunawi, his follower Jendi, particularly, and and Kashani, Qaisari, they were all philosophers. Mm. But first and foremost, they were Urafa, mystics. Mm. This was their point of departure. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to communicate their visionary experiences to the within the framework of the cultural climate. In other words, they were speaking to philosophers, they were speaking to legalists, they were speaking to the exoteric-minded uh, scholars of Islam who felt that there was a divergence between Islam proper, orthodox Islam, and the mystical methodology that Ibn Arabi was proposing. So, uh, superficially looking at it, it seems that these are a convergence of two separate methodologies. But when you go another step deeper, you find, we find that falsafa is the use of the aql. Mm. And it's not, falsafa is not limited to Aristotelian philosophy. It's not limited to reason and rationality alone. Reason and irrationality are a tool mm. that we use to discover reality. It's one of the tools. Right. The other tool is the qalb is tasfiya, is awareness, basira, insight, mukashifa, mushahida, dhawq, and so on. And so these are all terms that the Urafa use to describe their methodology. But the subtle point here is that the aql, in the real sense of the word, and as the Urafa and the mystics have explained, is a light, mm. it is a divine light. So by limiting the aql, and reason to rationality and only logical deductive reasoning is limiting the scope of the aql. The mm. aql is as we have in the hadith from the Prophet, the first thing that God created was the aql. Al-aql nurun. The aql is a light. And so from this perspective, the aql and the qalb are in fact speaking about the same reality within the human being. It is the, that, uh, that power of perception and understanding. Mm. So there are two sides of the same coin. Okay. Or Yeah, go ahead. And then no, I can say a few more things after that. Yeah, and, yeah. so just to kind of add that point actually. So um, if aql is a means to get to the truth, one would argue, but according to you, as, as you're putting it, the Urafa said that one can't limit the aql to just rationality. The aql has to be more comprehensive than that. So would that then include intuition as a source of knowledge as well? Yes, yeah, so there's gradations. Mm. One of them is intuition. It is a type of, um, it is the use of the aql 
but without the use of premises. Mm, okay. Okay. So the aql can intuit things. Mm. And once you get to a certain place in the aql, there becomes an overlap between the aql and the qalb. Mm. In other words, we can say that just as the qalb has two faces, the aql also has two faces. Oh, okay. Just as the qalb has an interface with the senses and the external world, and in the word itself, qalb is from qalaba, qaliba, which means to fluctuate. So mm. it fluctuates between the world of the seen and the world of the unseen. Mm. So it's fluctuating between sensory experience and spiritual experience. Mm. Similarly, the aql has two faces. One of them faces the sensory organs and reason and rationality, and the other face, it faces the qalb. So we can say that the qalb has an aql and the aql has a qalb. Oh, wow. Okay. The so qalb, the aql also has a qalb. So would, would could one say that as you spiritually purify yourself or as you know as you follow certain tenets of the divine law and you're going through this process of self-purification, the qalb prepares itself or creates itself as a conduit for the light to come in? Yes. It, would that be a good analogy? That's a good analogy. Or you can say that that the light comes from the aql and it mm. shines in the the house of the heart. Huh. In other words, the aql is the lamp. Mm. So if you have a house and you have furniture and you have paintings on the wall and you have ornaments and whatnot, all of that is hidden until you shine a lamp in the house. When you turn on the light, then you can see everything. You can make use of everything. Yeah. You know where the bed is, you know where the table is, you know where the chairs are. So the qalb remains in the dark until the light of the aql shines within it. Mm. So this is a spiritual principle of the aql. Mm. We're not talking now about reason alone and rationality. We're talking about a, a spiritual type of awareness a luminous awareness. Mm. This is the true aql. Mm. Okay. And on that point, so we've talked about aql and we've talked about intuition, we've talked about muqashifa, which unveiling, our spiritual gnosis. What about revelation? Where does that fit in in this picture? You know, the Quran, as we know, and the sayings of the Prophet are guides for Muslims. Um, and the Quran talks about, you know, following the Quran as a criterion for distinguishing between the false and the truth. So where does revelation fit in, in this equation? Revelation in the technical sense of the term, meaning Muhammadan revelation, Muhammadan wahi, is mm. the Quran. Mm. And revelation is a form of kashf. Mm. Kashf is what? It's unveiling. You unveil the hidden, the unseen. Mm. What is unseen to the eyes, to the senses, or even to um, certain faculties in, within within you, right. when they're unseen. So when it, when it is unveiled, it means you see realities. Mm. And the purpose of the true aql within the human being is to recognize realities. Al-aql rasulul haq, as Imam Ali says, that the intellect is the messenger of truth. Mm. So if we say that the Quran is the the word of truth, the word of God, then the aql leads leads one to those same realities. Mm. It shines light on the Muhammadan revelation. Mm. But there are slightly different terms, different faculties when we look at, you know, what is kash, what is mukashfa, mushahida, they're all the technical terms. But ultimately, the uh, revelation is the Muhammadan uh, unveiling and the human being also has uh, a, a, a hand in that revelation. We mm. also have a share in that. Mm. And, and that's, that comes from the Qalb and Naqal. Qalb and Naqal, okay. And um, on this point, why do you think it's important for a, for a human being who wants to actualize the truth and wants to follow the path to actually follow and practice the divine law? 
Because as we know, most mystics, I would argue probably almost all of them, they argued for an, a strict adherence to the divine law as part of attaining spiritual losses. So what if somebody says, listen, I want to get to the truth and I want to understand these spiritual realities, but following the divine law isn't really for me. How would one understand that uh, equation? Right. And you know, there is many of the Orofa, many of the mystics talked about a threefold division of Islam, Sharia, Tariqa, and Haqiqa. Mm. Okay, let me just define these three terms as Haydar Amuli, one of the 13th century mystics have defi has defined it in a very beautiful way. He says that know that Sharia is a term denoting the divine path, which contains principles and branches, right. permissions, ruchas, and resolutions, azaim, the good and the excellent. Tariqa is the way of maximum precaution, its superlative and firmest aspect. Whatever the path leads man to tread the firmest, most superlative path is called tariqa, mm. whether it concerns speech, action, quality, or state. As for haqiqa, it is the affirmation of something through the experience of unveiling, witnessing, or a state. That mm. is why it is said that the sharia is that you worship him, and now he's referring to the hadith, that sharia is that you worship him, tariqa is that you attain his presence, and haqiqa is that you witness him. Mm. It is also said that sharia is that you fulfill his commands, tariqa is that you uphold his commands, uphold them, and haqiqa is that you sub subsist through them. Wow. So sharia, in short, is the protection of the servant. Mm. It creates that level of decorum with God, that in order to arrive in the divine presence, you need to observe certain disciplines. Mm. You need to adhere to certain um certain codes of conduct. Some call it adab. Mm. But here, we, in, in the language of, of, of the deen, it's called sharia. Mm. So sharia is the adab of the outer. Mm. So not eating certain, certain things, fasting, doing shahar Ramadan, or making your five prayers and so on. All this uh, surrounds the adab of the exterior. Right. The adab... And the decorum, the propriety, the, the code of conduct of the interior is called tariqa. Mm. When you combine sharia and tariqa, you become um, worthy of witnessing the haqiqa. It leads you to haqiqa. Mm. So this is why these three, these three elements cannot be separated from one another. Mm. No one can maintain inward courtesy if they do not maintain outward courtesy. Mm. So could one say that in the Islamic philosophical perspective or from the perspective of the awliya or the sufiya, um, the human being has to engage all the, the different faculties, including the rights of the body, the rights of the mind, the rights of the heart. And they have to center all of them to be able to attain the truth. You can't just have truth, which is dependent only on rationalization. It has to be a combination of all of these factors. Yes. And this is why God made, uh, this is why God made in, uh, Salat incumbent, wajib, because mm. it engages the limbs. It is that you worship him through your limbs. You thank him through your limbs. Everything has a tax. And the tax of the body is maintaining the rights of Sharia. Mm, okay. So everything has a tax. Everything has a way, a code of conduct, mm. and and so Islam looks at all the factors that contribute to the perfection of the human being. Yeah, that's that's. Thank you so much for that. That's a question yeah. that I've thought about myself a lot, and it's the question that you know, in different discussions have come up has come up. So I appreciate you answering that question. Um, I think now let's get into like the meat of it. <laughs> Sure. Uh, Ibn Arabi, Sheikh al -Akbar. Um, So I had a few questions on Ibn Arabi's ontology or his study of existence. And if you could maybe shed some light on that. Um, could you maybe briefly shed light on 
what Ibn Arabi thought of as being the reality of God. Uh, in particular, what did he think about the relationship between wujud and the existence of God? And I know that he gives the, the very famous example of the white light, the prism, and the rainbow as a way to explain the reality between creation and God. So if you can maybe shed some light on that, that would, that'd be great. So the reality of God is the that, the essence, the unknowable essence. Mm. And none knows God but God. None knows God except God himself, because the essence is the unknowable, the, the unfathomable, mm. the ineffable. What we can know about God is the divine names and the objects of creation, the tajalliyat of Allah. Tajalli mm. means the manifestations of God. So we can know God at the level of manifestation, but not at the level of the essence. Mm. That being said, what are his manifestations? His manifestations is his wujud. Existence mm. is, a, is a philosophical term to describe describe God and his manifestations. If we say wujud mutlaq or mutlaq al-wujud means absolute existence, then this is the philosophical term equivalent to the divine essence. But if we say wujud with respect to manifestation, respect to the names, wujud with respect to creation, then these are the knowables. These are things that we can connect with. Mm. So from one perspective, God and wujud are equivalent. They're just mm -hmm. two different sets of, of terminology. And sometimes uh, we say Allah or, or God in, in the religious vocabulary. Mm -hmm. it's, it's religious discourse. And wujud and entities and so on, there's other terms for it. And this is philosophical discourse. Mm -hmm. And this is why the Urufah say, there's nothing in, in wujud ex illallah. Mm. Al wujud illallah. In other words, wujud and, and Allah are, are the same. Mm. Okay. And yeah. um, could you, as I mentioned that, the relationship between the manifestations and God, and as we talk about that, the names of God play a very important role in that. The Isma Allah, um, mm -hmm. as the Quran calls them, the most beautiful names. Um, and we also know that, you know, the Quran actually tells us or tells believers to call upon God by his names. So in a sense to essentially, in a way to actualize those manifestations. So could you maybe shed light on that aspect of the existence of God, which is the names of God and whether that particular aspect is a, it's a specifically Islamic doctrine. Um, and how did Ibn Arabi expound upon that concept? The names of God form the warp and, and uh, the warp and woof of the Quran, the essential um, themes of the Quran are tied into the divine names. Mm. We say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim from the very beginning. It's Allah and the names of mercy and benevolence and so on. Mm. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen and so on. So the divine names are the highest realities. Those are the, if you want to know God, you know him through the names. Mm. And those names are the very attributes that God has deposited in the human being. In other words, those names are the names that you are described with. Mm. You also have those attributes because this is how God created the human being. And that ruh contains the divine uh, spirit, which is the divine names. Mm. And God mm. taught Adam all of the names. And those mm. are the same names that the angels were not able to recollect or to recall. And it says, so tell me, in the, in the verse of the Quran, so God says, tell me those names, if in kuntum sadiqeen, if you are truthful. Mm. If you think you know something, and you have a problem with my creation of Adam, when I've told you to prostrate before Adam, why would God tell the angels, the highest beings, to prostrate before man? Mm. Because he's deposited within the spirit, the secret of man is the divine nature. And then he says, 
So tell, so then inform them of their names. This mm. is the verse in Surah Baqarah, right? It's a verse mm. in Surah Baqarah, verse 30, and, 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 then, and then some. So it says, inform them of their names. What are their names? The names of the angels, because mm. the angels themselves are reflections and manifestations of divine names. But they're individual names. They're discrete. Mm. And each angel has a maqam and ma'loom, has a specific station. That means that each angel represents one name and not another. Mm. So they're limited in scope and horizon. Mm. Whereas man is jami', is comprehensive, contains all of the names. Mm. So only man, that means the human being, is capable of relating the names and the realities of the angels. All of this happening, the angels bowing, even the, even the term angel, all of this is in religious discourse. Mm. And what Ibn al-Arabi and other Urafar are doing is that they are trying to describe those religious, those realities in philosophical language. So they call it asma, they call it tajalli, they call it, you know, um, comprehensive, insan al-kamil. Insan al-kamil is what? Adam, insan. Mm. It's just human. Insan al-kamil means the, the human being who has, who has actualized his divine potential. That's what insan al-kamil is. Mm. It's the Adamic soul becoming realized. Mm. That's what it is. Mm. So those don't let the different terminology um, confuse you from looking at the Quran saying those same the same statements, but in religious vocabulary, in a vocabulary that was that is closer to um, the time, the. Muhammadan language, the Muhammadan discourse. Mm. Mm. Each prophet brings about a discourse and each wali brings about a discourse, a way of speaking, a language. Mm. So the language of revelation differs from the language of philosophy, even if they speak about the same thing. Mm. Okay. So this is full of, through and through Islamic discourse and not just the discourse of Ibn Arabi and, and some of the philosophical mystics. Okay, so before we actually get into the topic of Insan al-Kamil, because that's one question that I really wanted to ask you, no. um, I want to go back to the topic of names and talk about the bifurcation between the names of Jalal, of mm -hmm. beauty and the names of Jamal of majesty. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Now, obviously, on the surface, we can tell that there is some names and some categorizations of the the being of God um, as being, you know, merciful, as being the most loving. And then there are other names that are, you know, God as the God as the mutakabir or God as the compeller. Could you maybe talk about the metaphysics behind that? So, the divine names can be divided according to a, a, a fundamental duality. Hmm. The most basic duality in existence is the names of beauty and the names of majesty, the principal division hmm. in wujud. And this is similar to what the Taoists call the yin and yang. Hmm. Yeah. Right? The yin and yang principle. So there are principles of existence. Hmm. So those names which connect with intimacy are related to the names of beauty. Those names with connect to awe relate with majesty. Mm. Or we can say beauty relates to imminence, mm. meaning how do we how does God how do we know God? How is God near to us, close to us? Mm. So we come to understand God through the names of beauty. And God is transcendent through the names of majesty. So we have this other duality, imminence and transcendence. But of course, we get to know God through both imminence and transcendence. Mm. We know that there is nothing like him. So this is something that we know of God. And this mm. is his aspect of transcendence. Mm. Or we say, wheresoever you look, there is the face of God. Mm. In other words, God's manifestation, his imprint, his signature is in all things. So wheresoever you look, there is a face. And the face refers to the identity, the ipseity. The face is, is how you recognize something or mm. a person. Mm. Yeah. But now the, the, the beautiful thing about this is that there is a connection between the names of beauty and the names of majesty. 
And one of the commentators of Ibn al-Arabi has beautifully put it. He said that every beauty also has majesty within it. Mm. Like the awe resulting from divine beauty. For it expresses the intellect's subdual and bewilderment. Mm. Likewise, every majesty has beauty which is the gentleness concealed in divine compulsion. As mentioned in the verse, in, in retribution there is life for you, O possessors of intellect. Wow. Yeah. So, so these two, so for every, for every beauty, there is an aspect of majesty within it. Mm. And for every majesty, there's an aspect of beauty within it. Yeah. Like when you look at the ocean, for example, you see that it's awesome and majestic, but at the same time, it's in its majesty and its awesomeness, you see its beauty. Mm. Wow. I'm literally thinking about the yin yang symbol. With yes. The, with the black dot inside the white and then the Absolutely. white dot inside the black. Exactly. Mm. So they had it right. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. actually, it's always really fascinating to see the commonalities between the different wisdom traditions of the world. And thank you for shedding light on that. Um, so now let's go to the topic of, back to the topic of the Insan al-Kamil. Uh, you mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, you mentioned that the Insan al-Kamil is the, the Insan or the human or the being who has actualized its divine potential mm-hmm. and and its Adamic potential, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we know that Ibn Arabi talks about these ideas of, and he comments on this, um, Dr. Chitter talks about it as well in the Sufi Path of Knowledge, that God teaching Adam the names, um, it's in the Quran as well. So now we know that some names of God, and this is a question that it, it's, I've, I've been thinking about this question for a while, that there are some names of God which can be actualized by the human being. For example, uh, God is merciful, and God asks us to be merciful to creation. Um, mm. God is loving. God asks us to be loving. God ha- is full of justice and asks us to be just. However, mm. there are some names of God, such as Mutakabir or, mm-hmm. or a Kahar, Compeller, that uh, the human being is not supposed to, f- to actually follow them. So how does one understand this, like, this, this difference, that these are the names of God that one has to actualize to be able to reach the potential of the Insan al-Kamil. And these are the names that one mustn't actualize. I don't know if I'm articulating my question very well here, but I think you might have understood my point. Yes. Basically, you're saying that there are some names which are off limits. Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, that's not exactly the case. Mm. There are times when, although... It is not the standard. Uh, when we get into takhalluk, takhalluk is that principle that Ibn Arabi talks about a lot, where and it's from the from the hadith of the Prophet. He says takhalluk will be akhlaq Allah. So uh, assume the divine char- characteristics. Takhalluk, adopt, assume, embody the divine characteristics. So this is the principle that he's working with. So. Within those names, some names are more comprehensive than others. And this is, goes into the topic of the division of the names. As we said, the first division is the names of beauty and the names of majesty. But within that, we have the governing properties of the names. Mm. This is a second discipline, second subject within divine names. And some names have a greater governance, a dominion. And other names are, are of a lesser um, there are lesser dominion. In other words, some are names of the essence, some, some are names of the attributes, and some are names of the, um, of the acts. Mm. So this is one way to look at it. Or we can say that with respect to governing properties, so for example, al-hay, the living, mm. this is one of the ummahat al-asma, one of the d- names, of the mother names, that these are the, this is the name of the essence. Mm. So all things in existence are living. Life pervades all things. So it's easy to adopt and assume this name, or for example, mercy. It's easy to adopt and do takhalluq, assume this quality mm. within, within the self. But what about the name al-mutakabbir? Mm. Well, we have a hadith which says, At-takabbur عند المتكبر عبادة. The Prophet says that that takabbur, 
arrogance in the face of an oppressor or, or an arrogant one is a form of worship. Oh. Mm. So in this instance, one does takhalluq of al-mutakabbir in order to combat takabbur, mm. in order to combat oppression or combat a tyrant. Oh. You don't assume the quality of humility or ubudiyah or rahma in the face of oppression. Mm. You have to take on one of the names of Jalal. When you go to battle, mm. you take on the name the vanquisher, mm. the compeller. So mm. you do takhalluq and you assume that quality in the time of battle, but not in other times. You don't walk around al-mutakabbir all the time. Mm. Right? So there are moments and this is why this whole concept of assuming the divine names is, is such a subtle and intricate topic because one has to know when, where, and how to assume the divine names. Mm. You can say that Ar-Rahman is a standard name, Al-Hay or Al-Alim. Knowledge is valuable in all cases, but not in all cases, in most cases. Mm. So for example, if you do takhalluq of Ismullah al-Alim, it means that you should inquire into all things. Mm. But there are times when you should turn your, your ears away from hearing gossip mm. and backbiting. So Ismullah al-Alim, even though God hears it, you should not hear it. Mm. So this is a time when you turn away from that knowledge. Or things which you should not hear, you close your ears to or you close your eyes to. So there are, you have to know how to apply the name, even though Ismullah al-Alim is laudable in just about every case. But there are moments and instances when it does not apply to you and it's considered a vice. If you try to inquire more than uh, uh, the Sharia allows, wow. for example, in the terms of gossiping, and vice versa, in the time of distress or battle and so on, you assume the, the name, the compeller, the vanquisher, the mutakabbir, and so on. Oh, that was <laughs> that was very well put. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, last couple of questions. Um, so we've talked about Nisan al Kamil. We've talked about the names of God. We've talked about existence, and we also talked about the prophets. Uh, you know, the prophets essentially being the insan, the manifestations of Nisan al Kamil. Um, what about the saints and awliya? So we know that in Islam, even though Islam is egalitarian in when it comes to human dignity there is a spiritual hierarchy of sorts. Um, and, you know, the Quran talks about this as well, where the pious are beloved to God. So could you maybe shed light on the reality of sainthood um, and the awliya and what trajectory they take to get towards Insan al-Kamil and how does that hierarchy look like from an Akbarian perspective? Sure. The prophet is a saint. Mm. Every saint is first, a, a, every prophet is first a saint, then a prophet. Mm. And as the commentators of Ibn Arabi, including Ibn Arabi, would say that, that, that sainthood is the batan, is the inward aspect of prophethood. Mm. Wow. So while the chain of prophecy has ended, the silsila or the chain of sainthood continues until the last day. Mm. So that spiritual inheritance is the inheritance of sainthood, not of prophethood. Mm. So the saints cannot, at this stage, cannot attain prophethood, the station of prophethood. And also prophethood is a divine appointment. Mm. No one can attain it. God mm. appoints one. Mm. But sainthood is a maqam which is which is the reality of prophethood and the saints are those who attain a certain level of perfection mm. in other words one can arrive at nafsul mutma'inna nafsul mutma'inna which is a term that's used in the quran the soul at the tranquil soul the soul at peace so this is the first level of sainthood mm. 
And then we go to nafs al-radiyah, nafs al and then nafs al-kamila, according to one division. Mm. Nafs al-kamila is the perfect insan. But again, insan al-kamil doesn't necessarily refer to the qutub, or only the prophet, or only the highest saint. Insan al-kamil means a person who has realized his individual perfection. Like you look at a rose, the rose is perfect in and of itself. It doesn't need to become an orange or a tulip or something else in order to be perfect. It is perfect in the way God created it. So similarly, the human being can become insan al-kamil if he or she arrives at their individual perfection and the reason for which God has created them. So if God has created them with the virtues of justice and knowledge and so on and certain other attributes as their governing properties, when they realize those properties to a, to a, a great degree, then God takes over and He seals them or He completes their light. He brings them into Kamal. And it's, all, it's only God which perfects the human being. No human being perfects himself. We, we come to a place of receptivity and there are stages that can only be achieved through divine grace. And mm. this is why Imam Jafar al-Sadiq says, Al-Ubudiyyah kunhuha ar-Rububiyyah. Mm. He says, servitude is a, is, a, is a kun, is an essence or a reality whose innermost jawharatun kunhua, whose innermost reality is rububiyyah, lordship. Mm. So when a person reaches this, the maqam of rububiyyah, in other words, that he doesn't become rabb in that sense, but he assumes the qualities of the divine. And so God colors him with divinity. And this mm. is why Jesus says, he who sees me has seen the, the father. Mm. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Mm. And we might have some, something similar to, in, in also in uh, the Muslim Islamic tradition, the Prophet saying that he who sees me has seen God, mm. and so on. So, so that rububiyah becomes manifest. Mm. And the aspect of humanness fades away. And mm. the Lord becomes manifest. And the insan becomes hidden. So the idea is that the servant attains the maqam of lordship mm. only through God, mm. through God, through divine grace. Yeah. Yeah. And that the aspect of humanness becomes dissolved. And this is the real meaning of the saint is the saint then is the hand of God, is the eye of God. And that's why uh, in the Hadith Qudsi says, Kuntu sam'uhu. I became his hearing, I became mm. his sight, I became his hand, I became... So God is saying, I, 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 I am the one who now is manifest in the servant. And the servant is now hidden. Mm. Wow. This is Insan al-Kamil. Insan al-Kamil is that God manifests himself through the servant. The servant no longer has his human self to speak of. He becomes annihilated in, 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 the, in divinity. And annihilation is a term which is really misunderstood. It doesn't mean absence of being. It doesn't mean uh, fading into oblivion or lack of awareness, uh, fainting. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that to become annihilated is like a drop becoming melting or merging with the ocean. Mm. That drop of water is water. It goes back to its source. And now you don't call it a drop. You call it the ocean. <laughs> wow. Beautifully yeah. put. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's how we can look at the insan al-kamil in, in the real sense. That was, that was actually... That made me speechless for a second. I, I'm going to have to like <laughs> process that, but that was very, very well put. Thank you. Uh, last question. Um, so if you 
talked about Ibn Arabi in particular today, but generally speaking, we talked about uh, Sufi metaphysics. Why do you think the thought of Ibn Arabi is important today in the world that we live in today with the intellectual currents that we face in the world? Why do you think that people should study Ibn Arabi? So we study Ibn al-Arabi because he laid the foundation, he gave us a metaphysical worldview, a cosmology, and in his writings and in his works, and also the works of the commentators and his followers, who were also great scholars, thinkers, sages, and urafa, that there are secrets that he exposed. There is knowledge, there's mystical and great divine knowledge to be attained in those works. But to study Ibn al-Arabi and only remain there means that you only remain in the past. So we don't want to remain in the past. We also want to look in the future, the present and the future. We want to look at the current and renewed manifestation. And this is why the Quran says, Kullu yawmin huwa fi sha'an. Every day that God is in a new manifestation, mm. sha'an. Mm. So that day is also today. Today God mm. is in a manifestation. Tomorrow he will be in another manifestation. So just like a person, if you want to move forward, you always have to put one foot in front of the other. Mm. And one foot is behind you and one foot is in front of you. So one foot is in the past and one foot is in the present or in the future. Otherwise, if both feet are equal, then you're standing. Mm. Only when there is one before the other, one in front and one behind, can you actually move. There has to be that always one behind and one in front. So we look back and we look at the contribution of the great luminaries because there are things and there is maqamat and there are stations that they have achieved that we may never achieve. Mm. We may never reach those realities. Imagine trying to come up with physics, if you study physics, <laughs> on your own. Yeah. I mean, we study physics from a textbook, which is a compilation of the minds, the genius and achievements of a thousand, thousands of years of human intellectual um, <clears throat> endeavor, mm. all put into this one textbook. And you are learning from that book. If you were to go and start from scratch and try to contemplate on what is the atom, you will be where the Greeks were talking about atomic theory on that level. Mm. Yeah. So similarly, those, those past teachers, those orafa of the past are guides. Their, their knowledge is living. Mm. Their knowledge is life-giving. It's nur. Mm. And similarly, we don't just look at the Muhammadan revelation, but we also have to look at the Bible, the Torah, the, the past revelations. Mm. Muslims stop at the Quran and say, this is enough for us. Mm. Without taking into consideration all the wisdom of the previous prophets, 124,000 messengers mm. have come to inform humanity, not only their people, but humanity in general. Mm. So they left a legacy. They left pearls of wisdom. And so we take from the Muhammadan revelation, we take from the Isawi revelation, and so on. Mm. But that being said, we must learn to apply those teachings and look into our state, our current state, mm. and see what are the new manifestations? What is the new knowledge? What is the age that we live in today? Are we in the age of revelation? No, we're not. Mm. We're not in the age of wahi. We're in the age of sainthood. Mm. So to look at only the Qur'an and to disregard the sainthood is to be out of touch with reality. Mm. So now we've entered a new age. We've entered, we've, we've, we've left the age of empires. There's no mm. empires. There's no kings. We're in the age of technology. We're in the age of, of, of intellection, of philosophy, of widespread knowledge, mm. of mixing of civilizations, of cultures. So the world has fundamentally changed from the time of the Prophet and the early thinkers and also the time of Ibn al-Arabi. The world is not anything remotely like what it was in that time period. Mm. So it's not enough to look at 
the writings of the past masters, but we also have to look forward and to look at what is being done today, what is, what are the manifestations that are within reach. Mm. So this is how Islam is a living tradition. Mm. It's not just a study of history. Mm. Absolutely. It, and we have to engage with the tradition to create contemporary solutions to contemporary problems. Uh, but Dr. Mukhtar, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. And I really hope that you can join on once again in future shows. <laughs> um, for those who don't know, uh, Dr. Mukhtar's book is called Philosophical Sufism, An Introduction to the School of Ibn al-Arabi. Uh, and it's come out very recently. Um, and Dr. Mukhtar, where can this be, book be purchased? It's available on Amazon. And um, I know it's a bit pricey. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't set the price. But um, those, um, you know, if you want to read the soft copy, I, I know that's definitely available online and in various places. So you can uh, get uh, the PDF if you don't want to actually purchase the hard copy. Uh, Amazon has it and most of the booksellers have it. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, the book is kind of geared towards um, an audience who is in getting introduced to Ibn Arabi and some of the major themes that he covers. Um, yeah, so yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. There's a great set of questions and I would love to do it again. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Rukhtar. Appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.